2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mallory E. Sorrell to discuss her new book, Democracy Declined The Failed Politics of Consumer Financial Protection, published by University of Chicago Press in 2020. Americans rely on credit to provide their food, clothing, shelter, transportation, and other daily necessities, and the 2008 financial crisis demonstrated how reliant they were on unreliable institutions that encouraged risky lending practices. Yet federal policymakers did little to change their approach to curbing these lending practices, and there was little political response from consumers or consumer groups. How can political scientists explain this? In a path-breaking book, Dr. Sorrell insists that the expansion of consumer financing in terms of access and economic significance is fundamentally a political issue with serious political and economic consequences. She offers a policy-centered explanation, one sensitive to what she calls regulatory feedback effects that shaped the behavior of bureaucrats, consumer advocates, and ordinary Americans. Sorrell explains how angry borrowers' experiences with these policies teach them to focus their attention primarily on private organizations, banks, and lenders, instead of demanding that lawmakers address predatory behavior. As a result, advocacy groups have been mostly unsuccessful in mobilizing borrowers in support of stronger consumer financial protections. The absence of safeguards on consumer financing is particularly dangerous because the consequences extend well beyond harm to individuals. They, as Dr. Sorrell notes, threaten the stability of entire economies. In addition to explaining the political dynamics of failure, Sorrell identifies three possible mitigations. Dr. Mallory Sorrell is an assistant professor at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University research interrogates how public policies are produced by and how they reproduce socioeconomic and political inequality in the United States. She's worked in both electoral politics and consumer advocacy. And given that this is the 10th anniversary of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I am particularly delighted to welcome her to New Books in Political Science. Thanks, Susan. I'm delighted to be here with you. So, so, how did you come to this particular project? Was it your work in electoral politics and consumer protection? Was it previous scholarship?
0: It really was driven um, by my work experiences. You know, the seed for this book was planted in my very first job out of college. I um, was fortunate to get a position as a research assistant at the National Consumer Law Center, which is an organization that works to protect. The finances of, of low-income Americans. Um, and I got that job. I was in that job from 2006 to 2008, um, which means <laughs> oh, I boy. was, yeah, it means I was uh, in, in essentially a front row seat um, in the lead up to the financial crisis. And so I watched these, you know, incredibly talented, dedicated experts on consumer financial protection, try and sound that alarm and warn policymakers that they needed to take predatory lending seriously, because if not, it was going to have uh, dire economic consequences. And I also watched as, as they and, and groups like the one I was working at tried to mobilize borrowers, you know, who had been um, severely affected by predatory lending to try and demand better protections from their policymakers. And it, it was um, so surprising to me Particularly given what political scientists know about the potential effects of lobbying and of mobilization to, as sort of drivers of political change, um, it was striking to me both in the lead up to, but especially in the aftermath of the financial crisis, how little policymakers were willing to change um, and how little borrowers uh, were willing to engage politics as a way to try and address these problems. So that really was the inspiration for the book.
1: I know it's incredible. And, and it's sort of rarer and rarer these days that people have some sort of actual policy experience before heading to graduate school and, and, and throughout the book, and we'll talk about the various methods that you use. I really think that that's reflected in the scholarship. You look everywhere and you include so many different types. Uh, I, I loved the book. I learned so much from it. Uh, But I was particularly impressed by the variety of um, uh, of of methods that you're using. Um, Let's start with a a bit of a reminder of how credit matters to the U.S. economy and to Americans. Um, In very recent history, the 2008 crash that some people will remember, but also the wider context of the of the modern American economy um, since maybe even a little bit before the New Deal. And and as you note in the book, there's a ton at stake because as you say, con- American consumers rely on this array of, ch- of banking and credit products and they're not relying on it just for a luxury item that they purchase once in a while, but their food, their shelter, their transportation, their, their actual needs, medical care, you also note, and you open the book with Elizabeth Warren's 2007 article about credit, which you note that Ezra Klein then says is, is the most important policy article of the decade. So would you just expand a little bit on what Warren said in this article, why it was so important to say it before the 2008 collapse, a- as a way of reminding or actually helping people understand why consumer credit matters to individuals so much in the United States.
0: Sure. So when, uh, you know, then professor of law, Elizabeth Warren, was writing this article, um, it was an article that was essentially pushing um, Congress to create a, a bureau specifically to protect consumers and their financial transactions. So essentially, um, an agency that's akin to the com- Consumer Product Safety Commission, but specifically for finances. And this is a battle that had been fought for some time. And, um, you know, Warren sort of lays out a plan for what this would look like. And the argument that she makes in the article is essentially, you know, we, we, we can't imagine at this point sort of in American history going to the store and shopping for, uh, she uses the analogy of a toaster, Right. With the expectation that when we take it home, there's a one in five chance that it's going to burst into flames and burn down your house. Um, and my understanding is this was actually inspired by a toaster fire she experienced you know, on her own once. Um, but she says that for one set of consumer financial uh, or consumer products, in this case, financial products and services, we don't have those same protections. Um, and we ought to. And the reason we ought to um, is because they are one of the most pervasive products and services that American consumers use. Um, if we think about it, you know, it's, I think it's, it's hard for, for most Americans, particularly those who can get access to things like a bank account or a credit card, to imagine going through their daily life without that, right? Um, and you know, at the time of the financial, or, or the sort of eve of the financial crisis, Um, about 40% or so of Americans said that they relied on something like their credit card just to meet basic needs, right? So to be able to afford their groceries, afford clothes for their kids, you know, afford food for their tables. Um, And another almost half of Americans said that in a financial emergency, right, if they had some sort of income shortfall, their credit card was their first line of defense, right? That's what they could rely on to sort of weather a financial storm. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, as a result of that, Americans had built up trillions in debt. So much debt, in fact, that by, um, I believe it's 2002, the average household had more outstanding debt than they were bringing in an income in a year, right? So the scale of the problem was potentially huge.
1: You've got... Great charts. I don't always wish that we could do charts on the podcast, but honestly, uh, that one chart that shows from 1986 to the present, the percentage of debt that Americans are, the amount of debt. I don't think it's a percentage that that is extraordinary. It's kind of a. As I said when before we started the podcast, there were things about this book that were kind of frightening, and that was was one of them to see this massive change. One of the things that you do in the book is. You focus on how all Americans, in fact, are dependent upon credit, but you also focus on how borrowing really is very particularly uh, um, pernicious for for some borrowers. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the the kind, you've, you've said a little bit about what the, the kind of borrowing that Americans do, but how does it vary across socioeconomic Groups, for example.
0: Sure. So we could think about access to credit in two as falling into sort of two big groups. Um, there are folks in the U.S. who have access to what we might call um, sort of mainstream credit uh, products, so things like credit cards, bank accounts, potentially mortgage loans, car loans, things of that nature, and then there are um, folks particularly less affluent, particularly um, communities of color, who don't have access to those sort of standard forms of credit and instead are forced to rely on things like payday loans, check cashing, pawn shops, So these sort of alternative or fringe credit products. So in the book, I'm focusing primarily on um, people who have access to those more mainstream forms of credit. But even among those groups, there are huge inequalities in the amount of money people pay to be able to borrow. So, um, as anyone who studies sort of inequality in American political economy will will know, um, or will be pr- at least unsurprised to learn, um, if you are lower income, if you are uh, a single woman, if you are Black or Latinx you are paying much more to be able to borrow than your affluent, wider male uh, peers, essentially. And part of what that means then is um, if you don't pay off your loans every month, you know, if you roll over some of your credit card bill, those fees pile up much more quickly. Uh, and so the effects of high interest, high fee credit, um, which are already unequal, then lead to increasingly unequal debt burdens as they pile up much more quickly for some borrowers than for others.
1: Um, The book does a great job of showing how this regime of credit didn't just come about through Adam Smith's invisible hand. It was not that the uh, individual's expressed a desire for this. It, it was done through some government design. So I was wondering if you could take us back to the 20s, the 30s, and and talk a little bit about how it is that this regime got established in the first place, and what the role of the government was with the otherwise private financial institutions that, in fact, set the terms for the fees, set the terms for the um, uh, uh, the the interest rate.
0: Sure, I think it might surprise um, folks who who don't study consumer credit to know that this is an area where, you know, in the 1920s, in the 19 early 1930s, you know, banks were not clamoring to make the types of loans that we have access to today. In fact, they were pretty suspicious of ordinary folks being able to pay back loans, and so they weren't terribly interested in doing that. So, you know, prior to the Depression, um, to the extent that people could borrow smaller amounts of money to finance sort of everyday things, they had basically two options. Uh, They could go to a loan shark, which was, as you might imagine, not a good option. Um, Or they might have access to installment loans for the purchase of of very specific goods, particularly things like large appliances or cars. And even then, those installment loans were relatively new inventions. But you couldn't, for example, you know, borrow $200 if you needed to sort of make ends meet before your next paycheck. Um, Banks didn't lend that type of money to sort of ordinary folks. And something happened to change that, um, and that was the Depression. So policymakers, particularly during the Roosevelt administration, started to look at the economy not so much in terms of production or how to drive the sort of supply side of things, but they started to focus on the economy as a consumption economy, which meant that they started to focus their policymaking on demand, on consumer demand. Um, and if you if you have built a consumer economy – uh, you need people to be able to buy things, right? And so people need to have purchasing power. And there are a lot of ways that governments can do that. In fact, we've actually seen many of those in response to the most recent sort of economic recession um, as part of the COVID pandemic. So one way is you can expand social welfare, right? You can put money from the government back in people's pockets. So through things like unemployment insurance or um, you know direct cash transfers, if we think about the stimulus checks. You could also try to raise wages. We've we've heard lots of discussions about a $15 $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, And certainly, policymaking in response to the New Deal did some of each of those things. But policymakers came to this idea for a different way, a way that wouldn't involve so much overt government spending. And that was to try and incentivize banks to extend private credit. So um, in the book, I talk about one specific program that was tied to housing and efforts to get banks to lend um, money to folks who who, to renovate their houses, right, to try and put the construction industry back to work. Um, But these these programs from the government that essentially said, "Okay, banks, we know you're a little nervous. So how about if we just promise to back you for a certain percent of your losses if if people don't pay back their loans as long as you'll make these specific types of loans we want and banks started to do that and they discovered that in fact actually people were pretty good about paying back their money and this could be quite profitable and that evolved into all of the forms of credit we have today Um, but that didn't happen by accident right as you said and it, it started a trend in American policymaking in which any time government needed to expand purchasing power, um, one of the most politically palatable ways to do that was to try and incentivize more access to credit. And typically that meant loosening restrictions for for each new group you wanted to be able to borrow. Um, Government had to find ways to loosen restrictions on lenders so they could um, charge more, so that the potential profits were higher to convince them to lend to borrowers who they thought were potentially riskier than the borrowers they were already lending to. And and that's sort of how we how we got where we are with, with pretty weak uh, financial regulations on consumer credit.
1: For me, one of the brilliant insights of the book, and I, and I felt like, how could I not have thought of that? But of course, that's what a good author is supposed to do is, is to sort of take a veil off of you. Is this idea that this is a decision, that if welfare were more generous, if employment uh, remuneration was more, this would not be necessary, that this was the choice. This is a better way to do it. And then that creates another industry that, in fact, the banks and the lenders that don't exist in the same way in the 1930s as they certainly do now and represent a political force because of the amount of money that is gained from the fees and the interest Um uh, it, and it and it made a lot of sense of uh, the last political, last presidential election for me, and I'll talk a little bit more about that with you later about Biden and um, and Warren on these issues. Uh, your book is is driven by this these puzzles, um, all about the failures of the of, of politics in addressing consumer financial regulation. And you express them as, you know, why didn't 2008 lead to a substantial economic and regulatory policy change? That it was huge, it was destructive. Why didn't policymakers come back at it in an aggressive way? You also ask why didn't federal policymakers change their approach, like they 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 to risky lending practices when they saw 2008. And and why didn't angry borrowers focus their energy and action on the banks and the lenders instead of the lawmakers? And and in part, it's because you, you kind of almost need to read your book to know that that's who that is or read things that L- Elizabeth Warren and others have written. But But it's not apparent to the consumer who is at fault. They see the first line, not the second line. Um, So, you know, another question that's looming in the book is why citizens aren't engaging this politically? Why are they engaging it as a sort of of a private issue between them and a lender that they have chosen themselves in some sort of proactive way? And then you also ask, like, why weren't consumer groups able to change those patterns of mobilization? Why couldn't they get people to see that it wasn't it's not the banks, but it's 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 the government. So th- that's what's driving the book, and you've got great answers to to all of them. But you build on some existing research, and and uh, and actually, I want to say to any writers, uh, from graduate students to the most established political scientists, that your introduction and the way you do your lit review there is something people should check out, not just for the substance, but for. The style and approach and how it's done. This is a beautifully, beautifully written overview of the field, and that's, I, I read a, like I read a lot of these, and I just want to say it's terrific. So congratulations on that. Um, but also, it's a really, it's it's a template for people to take a look at to just see how how is the sausage made. Well, um, so so listeners, I advise you to. Take a look. Uh, so before we talk about how you build on the scholarship, w- what is it that we already knew about credit and the extent to which it functioned as a political tool? to what extent did we not think about it politically, how the state had been engaged what what was out there before you began your your project or as you were working on your project?
0: Sure, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, And, you know, one of the, I think, both exciting opportunities and real challenges of this project is um, that most of the work, and this is starting to change, right, but most of the work when I was first starting this project that addressed the issue of um, consumer credit and debt and the policy story around that. Um, was not in political science. It came primarily from historians and sociologists, both sort of economic and political sociologists. Um, so, you know, much of the literature that I build on that's specific to credit and debt comes from those fields, um, and those scholars had written quite a bit about. So, folks like um, Louis Hyman had written about the sort of policy history of some of these these um, early sort of uh, efforts to expand credit um, folks like Greta Kripner and Monica Prasad had written about um, the ways that expanded access to credit um, really shaped sort of subsequent economic policymaking um, more recently, folks like Sarah Quinn, right, who's also a sociologist, have, have talked about how states use sort of credit as a budgetary tool as part of their state building. So there, there was work in these other fields that helped tell the, the policy story and the story of credit and debt. Um, very few of these, understandably, right, because these aren't political scientists writing, um, were talking explicitly about the politics um, and especially about the political consequences uh, of, of this regime right, that, that was built. They also were talking more about credit and debt and aggregate than they were about consumer financial protection, though certainly these accounts talked about policies that directly uh, tied into consumer financial protections. But they weren't really digging into the details of those policies and the way that those specific details might translate. Um, into some specific political consequences, so um, I would say we knew a lot about the history <laughs> of potentially how we got to where we were um, in terms of borrowing, um, but we knew less about the political dynamics, both of that evolution and and especially of the consequences.
2: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off. So tell me
1: a little bit about regulatory feedback, which is uh, really your contribution. Your one of your major contributions in this book, in which you are you are pulling from literature that many of us are familiar with, but you are applying it in a very very different way. Um, sort of both making some changes to the content and also the application. So how is it that regulatory feedback, policy feedback uh, helps us explain how we got to 2008 and where we're going? Because this book isn't just to be very clear for listeners who haven't read the whole thing, that this is not just a book about what happened in 2008. This is a very, very forward-looking piece of political science that is trying to say, this is how these loops exist in in potentially in many other sectors, but in this particular one, this insight allows us to think about how we move forward as well. So this is not just, I just wanna make it clear, it's not a history, it's it's both a history and a look forward. So what is it about policy feedback that that helps us understand this better?
0: Yeah. So for, for those in the audience who are familiar with, with policy feedback, you, you will maybe be familiar with this, but for those who aren't, I'll give a quick rundown. So there's a, this field of scholarship that makes the argument that public policies, once they're enacted, can reshape people's politics um, in a variety of ways um, as they sort of interact with these new policies. And this is a tradition that dates back um, to some early mentions from E.E. E. Schna- Schna- Schneider and then Ted Lowy, uh, but that has predominantly developed since, I would say, the early 90s and, and kind of ramped up in the early 2000s. And the premise of policy feedback is that typically policies, through their design and implementation, can provide resources to people, but they can also provide normative cues that um, either help us you know, have resources to engage in politics as individuals or perhaps give resources to policymaking institutions that make them more or less powerful over time but also that that, um, change the way we think about different groups or about our own political efficacy, about who government values and therefore whether those folks should feel like it's worth their time to participate in politics. Um, Most of these accounts, so if we think about folks like Ted Lowy, like Suzanne Mettler, like Theda Scotchpole, uh, like Joe Sauce, most of these accounts um, have traditionally focused on what we might think of as redistributive policies. So the types of policies that we might class as social welfare policies. Um, And one of the, one of the the dynamics that comes out of that is there's a real focus on policies that target very specific populations um, and where there's a fairly direct exchange between government and beneficiaries. Now, sometimes that exchange is hidden, um, but but there's typically a pretty pretty direct relationship. So I build on that theory, um, but try to apply it to the regulatory context. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. First, because the regulatory context works a little bit differently. When policymakers enact regulations, they are often intended to benefit individuals. But rarely do they, um, rarely are individuals the ones who have to comply with them, right? Most regulations affect the behavior of businesses, even if the ultimate beneficiaries are consumers. So there's this, there's additional sort of mediation (laughs) that happens before, um, policy beneficiaries ever experience a policy. So that's one thing I talk about in the book, how that sort of changes the dynamics of, 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 feedback for regulatory policies. Um, Another is that one of the primary um, arenas for regulatory policymaking is is not necessarily Congress, right, or sort of elected officials, but it's it's regulatory agencies and, and bureaucracy, and the the feedback literature um, has maybe spent a little bit less time thinking about how policies actually shape. Uh, administrative arrangements or bureaucratic behavior, or also what political engagement might look like if the ultimate target are sort of unelected bureaucrats and processes like notice and comment periods compared with, for example, voting or writing a member of Congress. So I try to explain in the book um, how we might still have these feedback effects that are filtered through these, you know, businesses before they reach beneficiaries that uh, play out in a different arena of politics, right, these regulatory agencies. And then finally, um, that affect groups that we don't often think of as sort of sharing common characteristics. So, you know, whereas redistributive policies might affect um, older Americans or, you know, low-income folks or um, other groups that, that share some demographic characteristics, you know, consumer financial protections affect Credit card users and people with bank accounts—like these—are not really mobilizing identities. Um, so I talk about how that might play into the way we think about uh, policy feedbacks in the regulatory context.
1: Now, that's really helpful. And and actually, as you're talking, one of the things I think that somehow I didn't ask you about earlier uh, and and didn't highlight it. So I apologize. Is the extent to which the choices made during the new deal put the emphasis on the ability of the consumer to read and digest information. So let me, let me circle back for a second and just let, let's get that, that in there. What, what is, where is the burden in this and why is this burden so important in how you see the politics of uh, financial protection?
0: Sure. So I was talking a little bit earlier uh, when we were discussing the sort of history of how, how we came to rely so heavily on uh, credit essentially as a, as a way to fuel our economy. Um, And I mentioned that one of the problems for policymakers is that they had to be really careful not to enact policies that would restrict that supply of credit. And so one of the fastest ways to restrict the supply of credit um, is, is to tell lenders that they can't charge a certain amount, right? To, to cap interest rates or to cap fees because that effectively, you know, sort of the logic says that effectively caps the profit they can make. Um, so instead, policymakers who felt a need to enact some consumer financial protections because they wanted consumers to, to feel comfortable enough that they will use this credit, because it's not good to have if nobody's going to use it, needed to find a type of regulation that wasn't telling lenders that they they couldn't make enough profit. Um So instead, what they did is they adopted information disclosures. So they said, we will tell these lenders that they just have to tell consumers up front, you know, here here are the things that could go wrong, right? Here's what we're going to charge you. You know, here's what could accrue if you pay your credit card bill late. Um, and, uh, And we'll put the burden on consumers then to essentially be smart shoppers, to make smart decisions. Now, you know we see things like this in other areas, right? If you go to the grocery store and you pull something off the shelf, it has lots of labeling uh, information on it that's dictated by the government, uh, most you know nutritional information or even labels that suggest, uh, you know, government agency was involved, you know, in regulating the product in some ways. But those are often paired with other safety protocols that happen behind the scenes. So before that food gets to the shelf, it has to pass government inspections, right? So we see this sort of twin type of regulation in most other consumer goods. But we don't see that as much in consumer financial protection. We lack the sort of safety protocols, the protocols that say, you know, no lenders, you can't make that type of loan. That's too dangerous. Um, and then when you make a type of loan that we feel is less dangerous, you still have to tell people what, what's happening. They sort of cut, policymakers have sort of cut out that first piece and just gone straight to the second and said, you can do whatever you want as long as you tell people what they're getting themselves into.
1: And we're still basically in that regime, even exactly. with the reforms. Okay. And even after 2008, with the reliance, as you make very, very clear in the book, at Obama, nobody re Visited in a serious way that and made any sort of of change to recognize that that doesn't seem to be enough. Actually, disclosure and 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 could we explore something else? And that's part of what you're trying to to um, to make us rethink um, in the book. Uh, you've mentioned mobilization a bunch of times. Uh, you've said that you know, unlike the Social Security Act, which may ultimately have mobilized older citizens as a lobby that people don't identify as credit card holders. They don't, they don't see this as, as part of their civic identity. So what, what problems does that pose for mobilization and for those groups that try to mobilize people who don't already see their connection? And what is there anything in particular that is different here uh, that we should understand in thinking about the, the, the crisis?
0: That's a great question. The argument that I make in the book is essentially that um, because these consumer financial protections primarily take the form of information disclosures that are handed out to consumers in the process of sort of ordinary financial transactions. So, you know, if you're applying for a new credit card, you get that nice little disclosure in the mail. um, But it just comes as part of the application. You assume it's something the credit card company decided to do and sent to you. And there's no mention of government anywhere in that disclosure, which is actually also quite different. So if you go to the grocery store, you know, it's, it's summer, it's grilling season. Like you want to put some steaks on the grill. If you walk down the, the meat aisle in your grocery store and you pick up some steaks, steaks like right on the front is going to be a label that says USDA certified. Um, and most people actually do know what the USDA is. They know that's a government agency, So it's just this very visible labeling, you know, that the government regulated this before it came to you. There's no analogous uh, sign of government on these information disclosures for consumer financial products. So um, what I argue in the book is that that essentially teaches borrowers that this entire process is simply a market transaction, that government has no role. Um, in the process at all. For those of you who are familiar with Suzanne Mettler's work on the submerged state, this is in in some sense an extension of that argument to the regulatory context. Um, And so because borrowers don't see government at work, and because the very nature of information disclosures suggests that it is borrowers who are on the hook to make smart financial decisions, I argue that when people do experience problems with credit, and they do, and there's a lot of evidence in the book about the uh, scale of people's displeasure with consumer financial products, um, that they turn to the market to try to address those problems. Um, whether that means contacting their their sort of lender directly, which I think most of us would say, well, that makes sense to do if you have a specific problem, you should contact your bank or your lender. But even when people try to engage in sort of calls for systemic change, um, they still turn to the market more than politics. So, for example, I talk in the book about how folks around the financial crisis were more likely to show up en masse to protest the American Bankers Association, you know, to or to engage in Occupy Wall Street than they were to direct that exact same energy toward um, uh, going to a town hall with their member of Congress or, you know, signing petitions or writing letters to elected officials. Um, and, and so I argue there's a pretty clear path. It's because people don't understand that government is involved because of their experiences with these financial protections, that as a result, when something goes wrong, they blame market actors, they either blame banks, or they blame other consumers. Um, and, you know, as we know, if, if you don't see some, someone as part of a part of a problem or a solution, right, why are you going to bother talking to them? And so they direct their mobilization toward the market and not toward politics. And that's a problem because it forecloses the opportunity for real um, systemic solutions to predatory lending.
1: Now, your book has some suggestions about those kinds of real systemic changes. Uh, and you one of them is focused on political mobilization, and the other is focused on the efficacy of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which, as I've already said, this is roughly exactly the 10-year, um, maybe off by two days, depending on when the podcast drops, uh, anniversary. So, so tell us a little bit about these two possible approaches that you see that might be able to have an impact. Sure. Sure. So I
0: will say, you know, the larger story of this book is one of, of structural barriers, right? So when I talk about the failure of consumer financial protection, those aren't individual failures, right? It's not the failure of individual policymakers or individual advocacy groups or individual borrowers. These are systemic problems that come from this sort of trajectory of policymaking, you know, dating back to the New Deal. Um, so... It, In an ideal world, there's a systemic solution, right, which is to reorient (laughs) our political economy to provide other sources of purchasing power that make credit and debt um, less significant and therefore make it easier to regulate, right, because folks are not as reliant on it to make the economy go. That's likely not happening anytime soon. Uh, though I will say I think some of the responses to COVID make that seem more likely than it might have even a year ago. Um, So instead, I focus in the book on some uh, sort of shorter term solutions. Um, One is for advocacy groups to try and focus more on um, achieving elements of policy design that make government more visible in the process, right? So fighting to make it so that consumers actually know government is involved in regulating these financial products, the same way that people know, for example, that, you know, your social security check comes from the government, right? Or, um, you know, even around the the 2010 healthcare law, people became um, aware of the fact that this new ACA and some of the benefits that accrued from that were from the government, And then when there were efforts to try and repeal, we saw all these people, you know, calling their members of Congress in unheard of numbers because they knew exactly who was responsible. So one way is to focus on elements of policy design that make government more visible in consumer financial regulations. Um, Another way that that is um, sort of parallel to that is to help increase the visibility of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was an agency created uh, by the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010 um, that was the first agency dedicated solely to protecting, the the first regulatory agency dedicated solely to protecting consumers' financial interests. Um, And so, you know, we could imagine a situation where over time the CFPB becomes much more visible to the public in the same way that the FDA is, or, you know, right now the CDC perhaps is. Um, And so that people understand exactly who's responsible and understand who they need to go to um, when they want to express those grievances with consumer financial lending problems.
1: So you say in the in the book, uh, one thing about political mobilization has to do with rhetoric. You talk about talking about economic security, uh, like to 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 start thinking about terms that might actually have resonance. Uh, I found that discussion to be incredibly uh, helpful. Another thing that you say when in talking about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has to do with long term leadership and. Because this, uh, obviously, your manuscript was, was put in well before the outcome of the election, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot to do anything beyond what your manuscript promises, but it fascinated me uh when you said a lot depends on long-term leadership and whether the pendulum is going to swing backwards and forwards. I don't think you knew who was going to be the next president here uh, when you were, again, submitting. So I'd like to ask you, so what do you think this looks like? You've already said that Biden's approach to COVID Opened up the possibility that Americans can see what it would look like to be given checks and to uh, spend money as opposed to having to to borrow it as a as a as an economic relief. Oh, uh, Biden. What is so? I guess what I'm asking is, wh- where does Biden stand on this, and how much uh, uh, how encouraged are you in terms of his leadership on this issue? Uh, second, thinking about Schumer and Pelosi, you mentioned Schumer in, in the book. Uh, you say that as, you know, as just an ordinary senator, there was the Schumer box, which, you know, you had to check, which would show you what your annual percentage rate of interest was. But Chuck Schumer is also the senator of a state that is highly dependent on banks and lending institutions. So it seems like like in thinking about the political landscape, how do you look at that? And who do you see as having an interest in making the kind of changes you're recommending? Do you, or do you, I don't know, what's your, how do you, how do you think about it now that the politics have sorted themselves out in the 2020 election? That's
0: a great question. Um, you know, and it, what's really interesting is it's a, it's a question that came up when I was doing research for the book. So one of the things, um, one of the sources of data for this book uh, are interviews with consumer advocates and, and leaders of these consumer advocacy groups. Um, And we talked a lot about the CFPB and what their expectations were for the CFPB. Um, One of the things that's interesting about the CFPB, it has a single director, unlike some financial regulators that have sort of a, a board that's a, that with a particular partisan mix, there's a single director of the CFPB and so when it when it first came into being right under president obama um the first director rich cordray who had a great deal of power to sort of set the the trajectory of the agency was um uh, well known as a sort of consumer advocate and so the cfpb under his leadership similarly was very proactive on behalf of consumers they um through their sort of um Enforcement actions against financial companies returned more than $12 billion to over 27 million consumers in the first five years of the agency's existence. Um, They enacted several new financial regulations. They um, addressed, uh, I think they hit the like 1 million consumer complaints managed in, in that first five year mark. But one of the things that came up when I was talking to these consumer advocates doing interviews for the book was... They're understanding that um, having a single director with that much power would really be sort of a feast or famine situation because when you have a pro consumer director, you can get a lot done, but if you have someone who's more adverse to the mission or, or more business friendly, you might not. And so, you know, that's exactly what happened um, when Rich Cordray stepped down under um, uh, during the Trump administration we saw first an interim director, Mick Mulvaney, and then the sort of permanent director appointed to replace him, Kathy Craninger, um, who were both very adverse to the to the bureau's mission and did pretty much everything they could to um, halt some of the regulations that were in progress to weaken enforcement. Um, Mulvaney actually even went so far as to rewrite the Bureau's mission statement to focus not only on consumers, but also on easing the burden on, on financial institutions. Um, and so, you know, advocacy groups expected that there would be this pendulum swing, that sometimes the Bureau would be a great asset for consumer financial protection and, and sometimes it wouldn't. So I think under the current administration, you know, Biden has nominated, um, Rohit Chopra to be the new director of the CFPB. Um, he has not been confirmed yet. I'm partly, in, we should say, as of the taping of this, he has not been confirmed. I expect that to happen fairly soon. Um, and Chopra uh, actually was sort of in on the ground floor with the original sort of CFPB. He helped launch their student loan ombuds office. Um, so I expect him to be a pretty aggressive a sort of advocate for consumer affairs um, and but again that's going to change from administration to administration and um, so I think you know we should expect the CFPB to go back and forth a little bit uh, as it becomes more institutionalized.
1: What? I said at the start, this book had such remarkable methods, and um, I'm not sure that the conversation has brought out that remarkableness. You mentioned the interviews. Those are fascinating. You did remarkable archival research in presidential libraries. Say a little bit, just a little bit about the, the spread of methods and, and why, like, why is it that as somebody who studies American politics, this is your approach because it it's, it's a, it's a heterogeneous one.
0: Yeah. Th- this is very much a multi-methods um, book. <laughs> so the, the book includes um, archival research, uh, legislative analysis and, um, It includes interviews, um, but it also includes uh, some pretty extensive original survey data and some survey experimental data as well. And I took that approach for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, you know, the book asks really these sort of three core questions. One is about the behavior of policymakers. One is about the behavior of individual borrowers. And one is about the behavior of interest groups. Um, and it asks those questions historically, right? So we go sort of, we look at this over time. So from the New Deal, really, to the sort of present moment. So there is no one source of data <laughs> that can address all three of those actors over time. Um, and so that necessitated a multi-methods approach, right? So I needed the archival data to, and the legislative history to look back in time. Um, and even into the relatively recent past, because some of the organizational work that I do Um, It also relies on archives, you know, from the 1980s and 1990s and even 2000s, actually. Um, But to to get at some of the questions of political behavior, particularly for individuals, I really needed to, to collect some survey data. Because one of the things that became clear from the beginning of this project is that while there are plenty of surveys that ask people about their politics... And there are plenty of surveys that ask people about their finances. There are not surveys that combine those questions. Um, And so, you know, when I was trying to figure out how people's experiences with different financial products and and their regulations might translate to their politics, there was no existing source of data that that paired those questions. Um, And so I found myself needing to collect my own. Um, And so, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of multi-methods research. I think it allows you to ask bigger, more complex questions. Um, You know, it it sort of necessitates triangulating the answers to things. Um, And and so that's what I do in the book. You know, I, I try and draw on these different sources of data, both past and present, to really get at the specific dynamics of the argument that I'm making across these three different actors.
1: Mallory, before I ask you about what you're working on now, um, is there anything that we talked about in the book that you really want to share today? If not, we'll talk about what is your next project.
0: You know, I think we've hit most of the highlights. One thing I will say is, um, you know, when I started working on this book, it was not that long after the the financial crisis and the sort of ensuing legislation that created the CFPB. And, you know, now it's about 10 years later, um, and we're seeing these same questions come up again, you know, this time in response to an economic crisis brought on, not by predatory lending, but by a a global health pandemic. And we're still seeing what happens when Americans are forced to rely on credit, you know, in times of economic um, shock we're still seeing the vast racial and economic inequalities that come with the different types of resources people have access to. Um, and, and, and so, you know, these problems still exist and the potential for political mobilization, um, I think is incredibly important because unless you get systemic solutions, um, you know, we're going to keep seeing this cycle repeat itself over and over. Um, so I, I think that that that's the you know, the take home for me is this may have been centered on the 2008 fi- financial crisis, but it's a dynamic that is recurring. And if we want it to stop recurring,
1: um, you know, we need to make some fundamental changes. So what are you working on now? What's the next book that we're going to have you here on new books in political science going to be about?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, you know, interestingly, uh, it builds off some similar experiences. So this. First job I had out of, out of college, right at NCLC. Many of the um, staff members I worked with were former legal services attorneys. Um, and for folks who are not not familiar with that, you know, in the U.S., um, a tremendous number of issues that people have, and particularly low income folks, are navigated through the civil courts. So if we think about problems people are facing right now, that includes debt collection, bankruptcy, evictions, right? All of those. Um, are issues that you have to go through the civil courts to resolve. And unlike with um, criminal cases wherein people are uh, guaranteed representation, even if they can't afford it, there's no similar guarantee for for the civil courts. And as you might imagine, if you go into court to defend yourself in a debt collection suit, and you are a sort of low-income person with no legal training and no attorney, and sitting opposite you is, is capital one, uh, who very much can afford to have an attorney, you can imagine how those court cases go for most folks. Um, so my current project is a co-authored project with um, Jamila Mitchner at Cornell that's exploring the politics of civil legal representation in the U.S. So we're looking at how policy evolved in such a way that we we, we have at times prioritized funding access to civil representation for low-income folks and at times not. And, and what the consequences are, the social, the economic, and especially the political consequences for um, low-income, and particularly low-income women of color, um, who are, are some of the most likely folks to have to navigate civil legal problems um, without representation. How does that shape their trust in government? How does it shape their politics? And, and certainly, how does it shape their socioeconomic conditions? So I'm really excited about this project, and that'll, that'll be the next one.
1: Wow. Excited. Really meaningful, hope to have you back on the program with your co-author to discuss it. Before we say goodbye, uh, favorite brick and mortar school bookstore out by Duke that you wanna shout out and encourage people to go into bookstores, safely? Oh,
0: that's a great question.
1: So I should say
0: I just uh, I just moved here, <laughs> um, and I moved here in a pandemic. So the number of um, bookstores I've been able to go oh, into, oh no, has name name one from small, s- uh, name one name one from them somewhere else that you've been. I'll, I'll give you the one. I mean, I think I, I think the the Regulator Bookshop in Durham is probably uh, probably at the top of my list.
1: Okay, so encouraging everybody to either use bookshop.org, which will support some brick and mortar, or go into the brick and mortar, and buy Mallory E. Sorrell's Democracy Declined, The Failed Politics of Consumer Financial Protection, University of Chicago Press 2020, well written, really accessible, unbelievably important. Thank you, Mallory, so much for being on Great Book. Uh, great books in political science. (laughs) Haha, new books in political science. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.